Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to this week's episode of Basically, I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and this week I am interviewing Neil Richmond, who is a Fine Gael TD, but is a Brexit expert. A Brexpert, you could say. A lot of you have been getting in touch with me on Instagram and asking me to explain Brexit, what it means for Joe Soap, just the normal man on the street, and Neil is the man to tell us. Neil, thank you so much for joining me. I, I don't think I've ever done a podcast where... At the start of it, I have had so little information and by the end of it have expectations to have so much. But you are going to enlighten us on all things Brexit. Am I right? I'm going to try my very best. Okay, so I don't even know where to start. My understanding is that, so Brexit has happened. We now talk about it in the past tense. This is inevitable. There's no more like, will it, won't it? It's Mm -hmm. happening. And last year in November, Boris Johnson, they had this withdrawal agreement Mm -hmm. with Europe and Theresa May had tried to get it passed, but no one agreed with her, so she left. Then Boris got pretty much the same deal, but disguised it to the Tories and was like, this is a great deal, you should vote for my deal. And they passed it. But then a couple of weeks ago, they seemed to realise what it meant, which was that there wouldn't be a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. And they don't like that. So they're now creating a law that is going to allow them to break that agreement? In a way, absolutely. But I might give a little bit more detail. Yes, go for it. Um, And I'm going to try and avoid the conspiracy theories because you get a lot of that and a lot of people watch British politics, particularly from this island, with a fairly biased opinion. And it's very easy for a lot of people to slip into Brit bashing, which is unfair and not relevant at all. Um, And then you get tied up in the domestic political debates and they don't like Boris, they don't like... Jacob Rees-Mogg or whoever it may be. Okay. So we have the situation that when the UK decided to leave the EU, unfortunately, in order to do that, they needed a withdrawal agreement. And so just even before that, mm-hmm. they want to leave the EU. The EU kind of works like almost like a United States. We are a group of countries who have agreements between ourselves so that we can trade between each other. We don't need visas to travel. And the UK have decided we don't want this anymore, we can do better on our own. Yes, unfortunately. To go back to the start of the EU, and I won't give a really lengthy history lesson, but where this all began was in World War II. Okay. So the six countries most devastated by World War II got around in the 40s and 50s and said, well, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? So they decided to pool all their coal and steel. Because in order to make tanks and guns and the weapons of war, you need coal to fire the mills to produce the steel to produce the guns. That is the simple uh, start origins of what is the European Union, peace. First and foremost, it's a peace project. And we have seen that there hasn't been a war between European nations or EU nations since the Second World War as a result. So it's worked. Very much so. The UK didn't get involved in that initially because they were the UK. They had won World War II. They were a superpower. But it turned out that this peace agreement, this peace project worked so much better economically as well. So we saw the industries growing across Europe. We saw social expansion. We saw things like, you'll hear farmers talk about CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, basically means that Europeans never run out of food anymore. 
So all these great things. And basically it got to the 60s and the UK said, you know what, I think we need to be a part of this. Um, and Ireland being Ireland at the time, if the UK did it, we needed to do it too. Okay. Um, so they didn't get in the first time. Um, cause How do you get in? You had to apply. Okay. So Ireland, Denmark, Norway and the UK applied in the 60s and the European club said no. Basically, Charles de Gaulle, the then French president, said, no, I haven't forgiven the British for what they, how they treated him in the Second World War when he was exiled in London. All these different stuff, but not really important. But then in 1973, Ireland, the UK and Denmark all joined. Norway decided not to join. First thing the UK did in 1975 is they had a referendum, the first Brexit referendum. And they passed to say, we'll stay in this. So the EU had become so much more, it was then called the EEC, so it was about peace, it was about the single market, yes, no customs, you don't have to queue up borders, you don't need visas to get in any country, but it developed through the 70s, 80s and 90s, the euro came into place, the UK chose not to have the euro, but quite simply, if we went back 50 years and none of this had happened, we'd go on our holidays to Spain. Okay, so you need to apply to the Spanish government for a visa. You get your visa, you get to the airport in Malaga or wherever, and you'd have to queue, you get your documents stamped. You get the other side, you'd have to get pesetas, as it was. Then you'd go to your hotel, you get sick, you're not covered. You have to pay for any health insurance, you use your belongings, holiday insurance. You decide, well, maybe I'd like to stay in Spain, I'm going to work in the Irish bar, I've fallen in love with a Spanish man or woman. You can't stay. It's very similar than if we want to go to Australia or the US All right, okay. now. So that's what it was like. But at the moment... I moved and lived to, I moved to Belgium with two days notice over 10 years ago Yeah, and lived there for two years. I could go to the hospital. I could have a bank account. I had workers' rights. I had all these things. But the UK, decide, for years, were never happy with this because it had big country syndrome. They still thought themselves the same as the US, the same as Russia, China. We don't really need this club and we can trade with the empire. And this pushed away for about the last probably 30 years, gnawing away and then eventually they decided in 2015, we're going to have a referendum in or out. Problem is, and this will bring us up to speed, they never thought about it. So what does the leave, leaving the EU entail? What's that mean for British people who live in France or Benidorm or whatever it is? But more importantly for us, the only border the UK has with the EU is the border in Ireland, the only land frontier. And of course, as we all know, there can't be a border, a physical border in Ireland anymore because of the Good Friday Agreement. Because if we go back 20 years on this island with the Troubles and the IRA and the UVF, border posts were a target. People were blown up. People were shot. It was a horrible situation. Um, is it a case that the British just didn't consider the Good Friday Agreement to just because Northern Ireland isn't like even kind of on their radar? The English didn't consider it. The English, okay, sorry. So there's a big difference between English, Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish when you talk about the UK. And this wasn't an issue. Brexit was passed massively in England, parts of England and Wales. The Scots voted against Brexit massively. Northern Ireland voted against Brexit. So, nor so the situation in Ireland was never taken into account. A lot about Brexit was never taken into account. So what was decided? Okay, you voted to leave. What's the manner in order to leave? There was three issues that needed to be sorted in the withdrawal agreement. It wasn't just Ireland, but that was the most difficult one. One was the rights of citizens. So there's about 900,000 British people live in Spain. There's about... 300,000 British people live here, about a million Polish people live in England, making sure that once Brexit happens, they don't all get rounded up and kicked out so they can stay. So it's the rights of citizens. That's the first part of the withdrawal agreement. And did they sort that? That was sorted. So people can stay wherever they are currently. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ben and Durham or London. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, th that was a win-win for everyone because it was equal amounts. The second part was the bill. 
if you want to leave the club, you have to pay off your tab. And the British government owed the EU quite a bit of money. It had done well out of European projects. It had returns on investments and property, all these sort of things. So it was worked out to be about £39 billion. Agreed. The situation in Ireland... So the, the, British, the, the UK said, yeah, we'll pay that? Yeah, no okay. problem. Now, there was a bit of controversy about it, but that's the price if you want to leave. You know, you have to pay your tab at the end of the meal. But the issue in Ireland has been the contentious one all along. So we were quite clear in Ireland and with our European partners long before the negotiation started that there cannot be a border in Ireland. And the UK agreed with that. But the problem is the EU has lots of rules. So food standards, environmental standards. If you buy a steak in a restaurant in the EU, you know it hasn't come from a cow with mad cow disease. It doesn't have hormones in it. Uh, the chicken isn't chlorinated. But equally, you know your cars, you know, they say they say what they'll do. The emissions are level. And so, but like in, let's say in the US, where, you know, it's a progressive society as well, some would say, you can get chickens that have chlorine in them. Mm. Um, and that's okay for their standards. It's okay for them, but it's not okay in the EU. Yeah. It, sh- it shouldn't be okay for anyone, to be honest. Right, okay. You know, you should be able to eat chicken that hasn't been chlorinated. And you should know your chicken hasn't been chlorinated. And that's what the EU's all about as well. So the UK then is going to be able to make it up its own rules and say on chlorinated chicken, they say, actually, that's fine for us. We don't mind chlorinated chicken. Or it could be more likely banking regulation. You know, we don't need to regulate the banks as much. Um, we can produce cars for cheaper. So maybe we don't put in two airbags. We just put in one. All these sort of things. Oh, well, the race okay. to the bottom thing. So you've, you've thrown off, as they would call it, European bureaucracy. But the rules are there for a good reason. And the rules have been good to us. Um, but the situation then is Northern Ireland is part of the UK. But, but it's, it's on, on the Ireland. 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 So, so you could have chlorinated chickens and one airbag cars in Yuri. Exactly. And then people can drive their chickens and their cars to Into Dundalk. Dundalk. Or wherever. And um, you have the situation then, okay, if we can't trust what's being produced or coming into Northern Ireland, how do we protect our society? Not just Ireland, but the whole EU. Because you can get on your ferry in Rosslare and go to Cherbourg in your chlorinated chicken airbag car, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, and that would require a border for customs checks, for regulation checks. A border on the island of Ireland brings us back to the late 80s, 90s, when it was a border that had to be protected by the RUC, the army, the guards. And that was a horrible time. Anyone who grew up in Ireland, anywhere on the island in the 70s, 80s and into early 90s, knew every night on the news you would be hearing about a bomb or a shooting, or a punishment beating. And we don't want to go back to that. And is the, so the Good Friday Agreement is sort of an international model. Like, it's it's a, it's a one of the most successful peace treaties in the world. And so people are internationally looking at this tenuous thing about mm-hmm. Brexit and saying, wow, this is actually quite serious now. So the Good Friday Agreement is an international peace treaty lodged with the UN. It's okay. international law. It's a big deal. Brexit poses a threat to it. It doesn't necessarily break it, but it does pose a threat. And that's what the issue of the withdrawal agreement is. How do we have a situation the UK leaves in a way that doesn't harm the Good Friday Agreement, that doesn't bring a return to a border in Ireland? So we had back and forth for years about, well, what is the resolution to it? So we came up in the withdrawal agreement initially with what was known as a backstop. Yeah. Whereby Northern Ireland, whereby all of Great Britain will stay in the rules of the European single market. So they'll apply the rules. But sure, what's the point in leaving then? Exactly. So that was changed to just apply to Northern Ireland. Okay. So the whole point is, 
since they've left, since the 31st of January, we've been having trade negotiations. So the idea is to get a really good trade deal between the UK and the EU as a whole. That means, you know what, we don't need those checks because we're all applying the same rules. They've gone pretty badly. The UK have tried to change the rules on them. And if there's no trade deal, the Irish protocol aspect of that withdrawal agreement kicks in, whereby Northern Ireland applies the rules of the single market and the customs code, which requires checks at the ports in Belfast. That's not very palatable to your unionists in Northern Ireland because they're worried about losing their British identity, yeah. even though the checks are at the, the ports, not the, bo- not the border on the land. It's also not very palatable to people in the UK who are worried about, well, if Northern Ireland has to apply certain rules, how does that restrict business businesses in Great Britain from doing deals with America or Australia or Japan, wherever it is? So it's blown up again. Okay. So what we've seen from the British government in the last fortnight is a thing called the internal market bills, where they essentially undermine what they've agreed to. So the withdrawal agreement is international law. Yeah. And this internal market bill breaks that. So the British government have said they're prepared to break international law. But you can't break a law. Like that you but that's not You can't rob a car, but people rob a car every day. But it's but they're making a bill to rob a car. Like they're officially saying we're going to break this. The Northern Irish Secretary got up in the House of Commons two weeks ago and said it is the government's intention to break international law, but only in a limited and specific way. Now, I didn't know you could rob a car or kill someone in a limited or specific way. They're still breaking international law. But doesn't that mean that, like, I can, like, if they if they do this and that sets a precedent, that Ireland could break international law in a limited and specific way by, let's say, I mean, doing anything, like... The fact that they're doing this, like, this is why it's such a big deal. Is this happening? Like, is this actually happening? This is in the process of happening. It hasn't officially happened yet. We've, we've only a couple of weeks in this process. But you have a country like the UK and whatever some Irish people's attitudes toward the UK are, they're a big country in the world. They're a respectable country. They're not North Korea. They're not Cuba or Kazakhstan or Belarus. They're a proper country who are respected worldwide. But they're saying that they're happy not to apply the rule of law. This is why you've Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, getting up this week, absolutely hammering this bill. And there, every single legal academic, every single living former British Prime Minister is aghast at this situation. This is big. So what, what does this bill actually mean? So they can break the law. How are they suggesting they're going to do it? Well, it means that they don't apply the inspections at the Port of Belfast or Warren Point or wherever it is. But then we're back to the chicken airbag cars. Exactly. So we're back to square one. So Europe will be like, no, you can't. Exactly. So the situation, so Europe goes, well, where do we do the inspections? And it's not just the EU. So Ireland has clear responsibilities to EU law. Yeah. We're members of the EU. We are the EU. Perfectly happy with it. It's done done us pretty well. The UK also have responsibilities to the World Trade Organization or any other country, be it Japan or Australia, that they may do a trade deal with. So both countries have a responsibility to do inspections. And if they go down this path, where do those inspections have to happen? They happen at in, in Louth, in Monaghan, between Lifford and Straban. And we go back to the whole horrible situation of what we've all been trying to avoid. A hard border. A hard border. But the problem is the political forces in Westminster really don't care. About a hard border on the they island. They don't care about Ireland full stop. They are pushing their dream Brexit. They've been talking about, oh, we could have alternative arrangements or, you know, we'll, we'll solve this with goodwill. Goodwill and mozzi and spirit. When really, no, this is about international they've never exper- They've never shown any goodwill in any of this. And are, interna- are other countries... So say 
they don't care about Ireland, but they're saying, oh, America, we're going to do a deal with you on, on, let's say, chlorinated chickens. Is it now the case that America is saying, no, if you put a border in Ireland, we're not going to do any deal with you? Absolutely. The, the US is the, the unofficial third co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. So last week we had Joe Biden, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, um, Richie Neal, who's head of the Irish Caucus, but he's chairman of the House and Ways Committee in Congress, which is House Ways and Means, which is really important. Pete King, who's a Republican, a re- like the first congressman to back Trump. And Mick Mulvaney, who used to be Trump's chief of staff, but he's now Trump's envoy to Northern Ireland. So you have the whole political spectrum. And a lot of people in the UK, when they all came out and said, no, sorry, if you risk the Good Friday Agreement, no way are you getting a trade deal. A trade deal with the US would have to go through Congress. The man who chairs the committee, Richie Neal, is saying, not a chance this is even getting out of committee. And Did that make Boris pause? It's certainly Dominic Rabb, his foreign secretary, got sent home from Washington with his tail between his legs. Right, okay. And it's changed the narrative a bit. It's dialed down the temperature. But the problem hasn't gone away. The internal market bill is still being debated as we speak in Westminster. Um, There's meant to be meetings next week between the EU negotiating team and the British government. But the EU, Michel Barnier, the main negotiator, Ursula von der Leyen, the German who is now president of the European Commission, have been quite blunt there's no interpretation. This needs to go. This is breaking the deal we made. We're not reopening something that is a deal. And bear in mind, this is the deal that Boris Johnson negotiated yeah. and was ratified by this parliament only nine months ago. November. When it was ratified in February. Oh, wow. So it's even more recent. And is it that they didn't... Are they stupid? Like, did they just not read it? Did they not understand? Or what has changed since then? I suppose two things have changed. Um, the political narrative. Boris Johnson's had a terrible corona. Obviously, he got COVID-19 and was very sick and that's awful and known everyone's I kind of think that was his saving grace though. I think the public kind of got a bit of sympathy for him when he did get it. They did and his partner had a baby during it and he went on a keep fit regime and, you know, he's a master of portraying himself to British people but the people who most love Brexit, the really hard Brexiteers, are the same people who don't think they should be wearing masks, who think that the economy should just be reopened up, that... You know, they literally say it's just a bad flu. Right, okay. And so they have been really upset with the restrictions that are in the UK, the lockdowns of places like Leicester, and they've been hammering Johnson. And his poll numbers have gone down steadily, steadily, steadily. What do those people love? The people who voted Conservative back in December, they love a bit of Brexit. And they love to see the UK standing up to Brussels, to the EU, putting Ireland in its place. Right. So this has come out. Now, that's a very political opinion. And it's an interpretation. But then you look at the why they're doing this from a negotiating point of view. So within the negotiations of the trade deal, there's two issues that they can't get agreement on. Fishing rights. So fish don't know any borders. So British fish coming into Irish water, who Irish gets to fish, catch them? who gets to catch them and what's the deal? Can European ships go into UK waters and vice versa? The second one is state aid. So state aid is where the government will prop up a company um, or an industry because it's struggling in order to give it an advantage. Right. The EU is very clear state aid rules. So that's to make sure that one country within the EU can't undermine the other country. You don't have that race to the bottom. Okay. All of a sudden, I don't know, Guinness, sorry. Aer Lingus. Aer Lingus. They are 100% backed by the government. They can undercut all their prices and absolutely square the market. Right. So the UK in pandemic times, everyone is bailing out companies. We're bailing out people, be it pandemic unemployment payment, the um, wage, subsidy. wage subsidy scheme. 
every country has their version of that. But in any deal, if you want a trade deal with the EU, you have to agree that you're not going to undermine the single market and you're not going to undercut it. Now, that's something that is struggling along the trade negotiations. But where it affects the withdrawal agreement is if Northern Ireland are still applying the rules of the EU. The UK is left. It's on a no deal. It's buying chlorinated chicken to beat the ban, but they can't bring it into Northern Ireland. It means that British companies based in Northern Ireland can't apply for the same state aid. Okay. Which affects all British companies that have operations in Northern Ireland. So it could be, you know, Coca-Cola UK, it could be Land Rover, it could be Sainsbury's Asda. And all of a sudden the British government going to go, we can't apply state aid because we're tied in to make sure there's no border in Northern Ireland. So how do we change that? We don't like this rule. The EU is a very good, a very good body at negotiating trade deals. They've done a lot of them. And there's a lack of understanding in the UK. It's a, it's a much smaller country than the EU. The EU is nearly 500 million people. It's the world's largest economic bloc. The UK is not negotiating with an equal. Mm-hmm. And like, we're part of the EU. We're the big lads for once, which is quite a change of pace and quite pleasant. But in order to try and break that backlog, they go, well, you know what? Never mind what we said before. Never, mo- never mind the international agreements we signed. We're going back on them. Uh, we're going to break them domestically. And um, sure, if you don't want a deal, we'll ride off into the sunset. And that's the situation we're in now. So we're looking at all this ends, uh, there's a transition period on the 31st of December. If we don't get a deal in the next couple of weeks by Halloween, all this will play out. So all of a sudden we have the issue in Northern Ireland. There will be a border then? Potentially. It won't, there won't be a border on the 1st of January, but all of a sudden the EU are going to, so how do we know the goods in Northern Ireland are safe? And the UK won't be able to sign any deals with anyone else. The EU is the UK's largest trading partner. Its second largest is the US. So the UK are looking at the 1st of January when not having a trade deal with either of its trading partners. If we don't so what does that look like? Can they not import things then? They can, but they do it very expensively. Right, okay. So about 40% of our beef goes to the UK. Yeah. You cannot buy a hamburger at McDonald's in the UK without it being Irish beef. Okay. But if they crash out, there's no deals, they have to apply tariffs. That means they have to apply a tariff of 40%. So you're buying a, a hamburger for one euro, that's now going to cost one euro fifty in the UK. Or one wow. euro forty. It's a huge jump. Um, and the UK only produces 80% of the food it needs. We produce 35 times the food we need, but there's other things we need to import from the UK. It's a big market to us. We ship to the continent. Medicines, the UK doesn't. Does that mean that it'll cost us the same? Like if we're importing something from the UK, will we have to pay 40%? Depending on the product. Some products are 40%, some are 20%, some are 12%. But it'll be everything that we import will be more expensive. So how how is it going to affect me personally? So these are the things I get from the UK. Sometimes I work in the UK. Mm-hmm. I travel, well, pre-pandemic, I work sometimes for, let's say, the BBC. I yeah. travel over, I fly over, I eat and drink there. They pay me mm-hmm. in sterling. And then how else do I engage with the UK? I have family over there and also I order things online from their clothing stores. Yeah, that's going to be the real kicker. Um, so ordering from M&S online, ASOS, whatever, direct from the UK or, or brands I don't to be honest know what clothes you order but I'm just thinking what my wife orders Yeah, that's going to be a lot more expensive Why? Because of shipping or because of because tariffs? More, because of the tariffs because the tax that's going to be put on it because they've no deal so there's automatically if you trade with any country in the world if you don't have a deal with them there's tariff and there's quota you get paid in sterling sterling will devalue very quickly so you'll get parity so your one pound will be the same as your one euro 
So the piece of work you've been doing doing in the UK, you'll be getting paid a lot less because sterling won't be worth as much. Wow. You will also have an issue of the big issue for Ireland, I suppose, is we export a lot of food to the UK. Beef farmers are struggling a lot. A lot of people in Ireland work in agri-food, not just farmers, the producers, um, the exporters. It's all tied. All of a sudden, if your beef or lamb is 40% more expensive, you're just not going to sell as much. So, but it's not you that's getting the 40%, is it? No, it's a tax. It's going to the, the British, government. Her Majesty's government. This week's episode is sponsored by the UX Design Institute. They offer unique, university-credit-rated online courses in UX design. So if you're looking to change careers, you can take their six-month professional diploma and become a UX designer, even if you've got no previous experience in design or coding. Do you want to know what a UX designer does? Well, if you're going to do the course, you probably should know. It's about how it feels to use a product, like use an app or use a website. So it will be your job as a UX designer to spot small details that add up to making the experience of the user simpler and more enjoyable. So if it sounds like something that you'd like to do, you don't need any design or coding experience, visit uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash basically to find out more. I want to bring your attention to another podcast that I think you should listen to. It's called I Know That Face. You know when you're watching a movie and you see a character actor and you've definitely seen them before, they've played a similar character in another film but you can't quite put your finger on it? Well, that's what this podcast does. It talks about those exact actors whose name you just quite can't think of. Hello everyone and welcome to I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. Character actor is a supporting actor who specialises in playing unusual, interesting or eccentric characters. For whatever reason, these performers are less concerned with being stars. Because of that, they often take supporting roles in big movies or only play leads in indie films or TV. They're less concerned with their image. They can bounce between heroes or villains. They're chameleons and they often disappear into each role. So you might know their faces, but you might not know the names. So subscribe to us wherever you keep subscribed for podcasts and be on the lookout for that to come. And until then, uh, see you later, cinephiles. Bye-bye. And um, what about like traveling over there? Well, this is... I have tickets to Harry Potterland that I haven't been able to use because of the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> Look, travel will actually be fine because one thing, Ireland's unique because we have a common travel agreement. If that's still in place. That's still in place. That trumps anything else. That goes back to 1922. Okay. We're lucky of the old EU 27. We've, we've special rules. Because okay. we're Ireland and we had these deals before we joined the EC. So any Irish person, regardless of what happens with Brexit, will still be able to continue to travel, work, study, receive benefits in the UK and vice versa. About 800,000 Irish people in England, about 300,000 British people in the Republic. So that's a lot of people. That'll be fine. Travel will be, will be fine. You'll still be able to go in and out. But things are going to be extremely expensive. And are these things, is this still like a maybe is there a way of this not happening where it's expensive to get stuff from ASOS? Sorry to be like no, reductive, but that's, that's what people care about. That's what it, absolutely. And that's why this is such a big issue. A lot of people hear about Brexit, eyes glaze over, we'll leave that to the business section. I won't listen to this part of the news, but this hurts us all in our pockets. And more worryingly, if there's a border in Northern Ireland, that hurts us on a much bigger level, but it gives things like the new IRA and dissidents a target. Mm-hmm. This, is, this isn't me making this up as a politician. This has been said by all the experts. George Mitchell, the man who negotiated the Good Friday Agreement, Bertie Ahern, the various British parliamentary committees, the European parliamentary committees. But the brass tax of it is, we could be looking the 1st of January. We're in a recession now. 
the pandemic has been terrible and the Irish economy has been terrible in every economy, but this will be a further kicker. So if you're in business and you're struggling, anyway, it's you're going to be selling less stuff to a large market, the UK. It's going to be very difficult to get your goods to the continent because the vast majority of things we export to France or Germany, they get in the ferry in Holyhead or get in the ferry in Dunleary or Dublin, get off at Holyhead, go across England, then go Dover to Calais. It's much quicker than going um, Rosslare to Sherberg or whatever the equivalent is. That's a huge issue. Just yesterday we see in the UK that there's going to be tailbacks of hundreds of kilometres from Dover. They haven't put in the resources to do it. And this is going to be a huge issue that's going to erupt on the 1st of January and the first few months of next year when we're having a bad time with the economy as it is. But even if we weren't, this affects every single aspect of our life. Anyone who's working in any company that produces anything, either they're bringing in parts from or through the UK that they need to make whatever it is, you know, it could be a pharmaceutical company down in Cork, it could be an engineering company. It could be a coffee cup holder, like anything. Absolutely. You know, all these sort of ingredients. But equally, when you're selling back, if you are exporting to or through the UK, you're going to be doing a lot less of that because people aren't going to pay as much. But what do the UK think it's going to be like? Because I don't know who anyone, even conspiracy theorists, mm. you know, people who are Brexiteers, I can't see anyone voting for that reality. Well, unfortunately, the majority did. And the did re- they know that that's what it was going to no, be? No, they didn't. They're absolutely sold a pub. Um, a lot of it, so for years in the UK, and it happens here too, anything bad, blame Brussels, blame the EU. Right, okay. You know, straight bananas, blue passports, all this stuff that sounds funny, but when it's put on the front of the Daily Express or the Daily Mail in the UK every day for 40 years, it gnaws away. You're unhappy um, being unemployed, you, maybe your rent is really high, you can't get a home. You know what? It has to be the EU's fault. Or, as we saw in the UK, and this is a really sad thing, must be the fault of immigrants. They're coming over here, stealing our jobs. But they're allowed to stay now. Exactly. It makes no difference. This is the thing. But yes, they voted thinking, well, look, Nigel Farage said, oh, well, Turkey's going to join the EU and 70 million Turks are going to move to England. There only is 70 million Turks. They're not all going to move. Turkey (laughs) isn't going to join the EU. But that was a billboard through the campaign. Right. Okay. And like the hard Brexiteers, I've debated every single one of them on every form of British media, they all sell this absolute fantasy. We're going to trade with, and it's very specific to countries, America, Canada, the, U- the USA, sorry, not America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia. But some of them have India. already said, no, you're, we're not going to do a deal with you if you continue exactly. in this way. But, you know, with goodwill and blitz spirit, we're all going to go through this. And but didn't they, like, when they were in, what was it about the EU that they didn't like, that they were making the rules? But the EU wasn't making the rules. Like they didn't have to, they still have sterling. They didn't even have to take the euro. They had a good enough, they, like they were able to have their cake and eat it too, in a way. Absolutely. They got more um, derogations and exemptions than any other EU member state. Again, they don't have sterling, very clear, but there's lots of other things that they didn't have to apply as strictly. The city of London had a much, you know, freer status because it is a financial centre of the world. Um, but the myth was, look, it's all Brussels' fault. We're going to get out. The empire is going to come back. We're going to be a, a big country. strikes back. Literally, that is it. And um, we're going to get rid of all the foreigners. You're going to have a much better job, a much standard living. And if you see the areas that voted for Brexit, it was generally the, the areas that are struggled, the, the poor areas that have been neglected by 
politicians and businesses. London voted massively to remain. Liverpool voted to remain. Manchester voted to remain. Scotland voted to remain. But if you go into Birmingham or the Midlands or the north of England, the former coal mining towns yeah. massively voted leave. And they also massively voted conservative in the last general election. I hate to use the comparison, but it's completely valid. You look at America, you look at Trump. He was going to build a wall. He was blaming Mexico. He was blaming the liberal elites. You had Michigan and Wisconsin and the former, the states that produced, you know, cars and big heavy industry all switched and voted Trump. Brexit wasn't a massive victory. It was 51% to 49%. It was really, really close. And the lesson for Ireland in particular, if you take the EU for granted, if you use it as a foreign entity just to take pot shots at and blame, it can come back to bite you in the ass very seriously. And that's what we're seeing in the UK at the moment. The unfortunate thing is we're their nearest neighbour. We're their oldest friend slash enemy, depending yeah. on what side of the political spectrum we're on. And it's going to hurt us more than any other EU member state. And the vast majority of my European colleagues, they just don't care about Brexit anymore. And you watch Westminster, you want to laugh, you want to cry with some of the things that are being said there. Do you think that there's any way that the UK could be like, we actually made a mistake, we don't want to do this anymore? No. That will never happen? No, the, the chance of another referendum, maybe in a generation's time, but they believe the hype. They believe that, you know, this but is going to if be you, good. If the pa- picture that you're painting comes to pass... Mm-hmm. They're not going to believe the hype on the 2nd of January. We've been painting this picture. Yeah, but when they see it, like on the 1st of January and the Dover queues and the six euro, one euro hamburgers. And the run in the supermarkets and the fact that diabetics can't get enough insulin. And the fact that a lot of businesses are already, Barclays Bank have moved 300 employees here today. HSBC have moved 2000 to Frankfurt. We were told and we are still being told that this is Project Fear. It's the easiest dismissive. Oh, it's a project fear. It's Ramoners is what the Remain, people who voted Remain in the UK. And people who might have voted Remain, the vast majority have said, look, let's just accept the present. So you don't hear the Confederation of British Industry or the National Farmers Union giving out anymore. They've just accepted that this is going to happen and they just have to get on. Johnson has a majority of 80 odd seats. He's not going anywhere. And the hardest of Brexit is coming and it's being cheered on by the tabloid media and many people who think, well, you know what, it, it, comes, out, it comes back to everything in politics. And I'm in politics over a decade now. People love blaming someone else. Mm-hmm. It's not always easy to blame someone for whatever issue. We can't blame anyone for the pandemic. It's here. It's rubbish. It's affecting all our lives in ways we don't like it. People are losing family members. But you can't say, well, it's all China's fault or it's all Stephen Donnelly or Simon Harris's fault. It's grossly unfair and wrong. But people in all levels of politics, do it. probably in my own party, probably I've done it many times myself, always love to have someone to blame. And in the UK, blaming Europe, um, Europe is an easy thing and it's led to this absolute disaster that is Brexit. So what's, so like, what could we do? Nothing? No, there's, there's a lot we can do, particularly if you're a, a business owner of any shape and size, um, you go on to gov.ie slash Brexit. They have all the supports and resources that are available, grants, funds. You can go through and go, okay, well, my supplier, I get all my my supplies from an operation in Dunleary, but where do they get their supplies? Can I confirm that I'll still be able to get my supplies? I'm exporting to the UK. Are they still going to want my product? Is my contract still viable? These are all the things that can do. It's... From a personal point of view, 
absolutely this is going to be extremely bad. If you're a British person who lives here and you're driving on a British driving license, get an Irish driving license. Those sort of simple things. But the main thing is, particularly, it's most important for those working in businesses. Or if you're in a business, say to your boss, look, I know you're up to your eyes. You're fighting to save the company. It's a really difficult times. But what's our Brexit contingency plan? And for us as politicians, we have to continue the negotiation. So the EU isn't going to walk away and say, you know what? Yeah, no deal. Let's blow this up. We're going to put up a border in Ireland as well. We're going to negotiate to the very last second. Our negotiator is Michelle Barnier. Simon Coveney speaks to him every day. Yeah. We met him in Brussels yesterday. It's making sure that, and this is something that I rarely say, pretty much every politician in Ireland agrees with this. This is something that I have no problem sitting down with someone from Sinn Féin or any other party and saying, yeah, we're all on the same page here and happy to do so. And this is something that's just bigger than party politics in Ireland. But certainly um, the message has to go out to business owners, people working in business and like hopefully common sense will prevail and we'll get an element of a trade deal. And ultimately, a lot of the things that need to happen in the protocol, they have been happening anyway. The infrastructure is being built in the ports in Belfast and Warren Point and all these other places. But we're getting really close to the deadline now. We're getting really close. We're looking at... Is there, uh, can you get an extension again? No? Ah, this is the problem. Yes, they could have had a two two year extension to the transition period that we're in, but the British government voted not to do that. But they really just want to leave, don't they? They don't really care what's going to happen. Get Brexit done is what gave Boris Johnson a massive majority in the last general election. And I kind of get it because I'm sick of hearing (laughs) about it. But now that you've painted the picture, I'm like, I don't want that reality though. No, and um, people get sick of me talking about Brexit. But it's something I'm not just interested in, but passionate in. And you can't just dismiss it and say, oh yeah, that was a big thing last November. That was a big thing, you know, because it does, it comes up and it goes back down periodically. But for those of us who are working on Brexit, particularly the civil servants in the Department of Foreign Affairs, it is an absolute constant. And if you speak to any of the economists or people working in businesses or in any of the big accountancy firms, this is a far bigger threat than the pandemic potentially for the Irish economy. Right, okay. And it could have long-term effects if there isn't a resolution. And there's a notion in the UK, oh, well, we'll, we'll crash out and then we'll negotiate a deal we like. It's not going to happen. Like the but EU's surely if they crash out, they're in the they're in an even worse position to be negotiating because oh, they're going to be desperate. They're going to be desperate economically, but economics doesn't matter to the politicians sometimes. But more importantly, why would anyone do a deal with a country that breaks a deal it's just done? Yeah. Why would... Australia turn around and say, or Japan. Japan have just negotiated a trade deal with the UK. They haven't ratified it. Why would they ratify it when they say, well, nine months ago you negotiated a deal with the EU who are a lot more important to you that had a peace deal in the middle of it and you broke it nine months later. Why would we trust you? Why would we trust you? There is no trust. The UK spends a lot, rightly, a lot of time diplomatically pressurising China over Hong Kong because there's an international agreement going back to 97. How can they, in good faith, turn around to China and say, you need to meet your international obligations, but ours to Ireland and the EU don't really matter? That's right, yeah. Um, can so. I ask you a question? Is there an Irish political party that would like Ireland to leave the EU? Maybe you might be able to answer that. No, there, there's two. Okay. Um, you probably haven't heard of either of them. Uh, okay. the, Nas- the National Party and the Irish Freedom Party. They got less than 1% in the local and European elections in 2019. Well, that's reassuring. Um, a lot of them are the same people you'd see outside the customs house and the doll at the weekends on anti-mask protests. Okay. And we saw the horrendous um, incidents uh, of attacking people and counter-protests. What I do see and what is really worrying in Ireland, 
they're not necessarily looking for an IR exit, as they call it, but there are certain members of the Dáil who at times do humour the Eurosceptics, that they like to blame the EU on about farm inspections or they talk about the threat of an EU army, even though it's, it's not actually happening. Yeah. Um, and it's something that certainly in my few years in the Oireachtas, I've been probably a bit hyperactive about to call that out. Mm-hmm. So like, you can't just be, it's like you can't be kind of pregnant. You can't be kind of you're a skeptic because you're opening the door. And once that becomes agreeable, like no one in the UK, like the whole myth of the UK, blue passports were the symbol of Brexit. We're going to leave. We're going to get rid of the lovely burgundy passport. We're going to have blue passports. They could have blue passports anyway. You didn't need to leave the EU to get a blue passport. (laughs) Croatia has a red passport. We had green passports a few years ago. Like, but yet this was the big symbol. And we could easily say, you could see some parties and they use it as a slogan saying no to an EU army. There isn't an EU army coming. But that slogan resonates. You've got someone who's sitting at home going like, does that mean my son or daughter is going to be conscripted to an by a Frenchman to go fight in Iraq? No, of course not. It's not even on the radar, but it makes for a good political slogan. Yeah. And the more you start saying that, the more people start believing it. So it requires a huge amount of responsibility on elected reps to inform themselves about it and not go down the populist narrative. See it across Europe. Ireland is 84% pro-EU. There's still a 16% of us who want to leave the EU for lots of different reasons. They can be hardcore Irish nationalists who want a, an independent 32-county republic with comely maidens dancing at the crossroads where we produce all our own food. We could people who don't want anyone from abroad coming in here. You have lots of different reasons. Or some people who, you know what, I'm getting sick of having to follow all these directives when I'm farming or when I'm producing. Maybe it's okay to cut the odd corner. It's not. When you're dealing with people's food, when you're dealing with the air they breathe, the water they drink, it's there for a reason. Is there anything else that we need to know about Brexit before you leave us right now? Right now, um, I think the main thing is it's very, very easy to be anti-British and a lot of what I said may have come across as having a pop at the UK or a Brit passion. It's not. The UK, regardless of how they leave, they still will be our closest neighbour and we still need to have good relations with them. So it's a delicate balance. So avoid the, knee, the knee-jerk reaction of just bashing them. Bashing them. That would be something I'd like to take away, as complicated as that sounds after the, the quasi-rant I've just had for the last little while. And then my last question before I finish if Brexit, no, because Brexit is happening, do you think there are other EU countries that are looking at Brexit and thinking, we'll see how that goes now and then we'll decide to leave? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Hungary, uh, Italy, Poland, they're all countries with very strong Eurosceptic uh, movements. Right. They've gone down. So Germany, the AFD, who would be a hard right element of Nazism in them, and that's not being dramatic, Yeah. Um, were doing really well about two years ago height of the refugee crisis they've gone way down again largely because it turned out the refugee crisis it was quite good bringing people in from Syria to Germany and it's the right thing to do but also because the absolute car crash of what's going on in the UK and how it's paralysed it Okay. Um, but I'd be worried about Hungary in particular because they have quite an authoritarian leader same in Poland some awful things going in there with LGBT free zones and all this sort of stuff that doesn't go with the European values. Okay. You can't be an EU member state and criminalise homosexuality. How come they're able to do it then? Well, they're trying to do it. Okay. And there's legal um, 
there's legal actions Sanctions taken against them. Yeah, Article 7 proceedings by the EU. Like, you don't want to mess with the EU. You don't break EU rules willy-nilly. Like, the Unless you're Boris Johnson. He's left. So he's no longer... He's no longer... Like, if they do leave, if they do break this international treaty, like, the brass tacks of it is this is going to cost them hundreds of millions of pounds, if not more, in fines. Because they'll have broken international law. You, there are punishments for they, international law. But if they break international law, they're sure going to be like, well, I'm not paying that. What are you going to do about it? Well, then that gets put onto their sovereign debt and no one lends them money. Right. It's like you can't walk away from your bank if you owe them a mortgage and keep your house. Yeah. It's the exact same. When you break international law, you have to pay your fines. But it just seems like if they're breaking international law, then the next law, they'll just break that and just keep... Yeah, but that's why you bring money into it. Right. At the end of the day, if you can't access money from the international markets, if people aren't going to pay you back your debts and they can write it off, that starts to hurt very quickly. Right. We will follow it with fear and interest. Yeah, hopefully I haven't depressed people too much. You haven't, but uh, we might get you back on on the 1st of January. <laughs> I don't know how much happier I'll be, but hopefully. We'll see. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Basically. If you enjoyed it, I would really appreciate a shout out on social media or if you would rate it and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps me to reach a bigger audience if you use your word of mouth to promote the show. It's the smallest but biggest thing that you can do for me. We are produced by the Headstuff Podcast Networks. We record at the podcast studios. Our graphic design is by Cahal O'Gara and our music is by Only Ruin. See you again soon. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.